Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Hello everyone, this is Grace, the community manager here at the StoryCraft Cafe, and I am so excited to announce that our cafe is now open for business. We opened on Friday and we had such a great time. Um, so many people showed up, there was great conversations happening in the community. Um, we had an amazing interview with Christopher Paolini. The recording from that is up so you can go look at it on the community. Uh, and I am just, I was just overwhelmed with the amount of support that we were shown. So if you want to be a part of this project um, and come hang out with us, you can find us at the Storycraft Cafe. That's S-T-O-R-Y dot C-A-F-E. Again, that's storycraft.cafe. We would love to see you, and I hope to see you there soon. Welcome to episode five of the StoryCraft Cafe. Today, our very special guest is Christopher Paolini. Christopher joined us last Friday to help celebrate the launch of StoryCraft.Cafe, the writing site for writers to join together and to share thoughts on craft and stories and all things writerly goodness. Come on and join us at storycraft.cafe. Before we get into our interview with Christopher, though, I'd like to take just a moment and hear from R.A. Salvatore about what it is about fantasy that he loves and that resonates so deeply with so many people. Well, a good book has conflict. Yeah. And to me, uh, a good explanation of the conflict is when you get inside the heads of, of the protagonists and the antagonists and seeing the world from someone else's someone other than someone different than you seeing the world from the viewpoint of someone who has a different viewpoint than you to me is growth it's, it's a critical element if you you know we have to coexist and I think fantasy can do that very well there are other things about fantasy. The thing, the thing I love about the genre, I've been saying it for a whole bunch of years, is that it, there are so many different things you can do with it. That war without guilt, if you're fighting an army of undead or demons, right? You don't have to feel bad about fighting them. Um, so you can have the excitement, the the, the high the high heart rate, the blood pressure pumping, the the tension without some of the complicating issues of actual war, if you will, the, the, the horrors of it, on the emotional horrors of it. And I think that's attractive to people. I think another thing about fantasy that's attractive to people is that not everything is explained. There's, there are mysteries. There are there. Are, things you don't understand you admit you don't understand them and that in a way is faith so fantasy to me gives you everything can give you everything you want out of a good good conflict story or adventure story and that's why i've been with it for 30 well almost 40 years now i've been writing um and that's why i love the genre so much 
Welcome everyone to the Storycraft Cafe. Today is launch day and this is something that we have been counting down uh, to for quite a while and uh, if you've been listening we we started a new podcast uh, the Storycraft Cafe podcast and you can find it uh, anywhere that podcasts are hosted uh, but today we wanted to celebrate and kick off this momentous occasion and uh, who better to do that with than, than my buddy Christopher Paolini and uh, so much great stuff to talk about today. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Christopher. Well, my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Uh, for those who are just joining us and stuff, uh, why don't you tell everyone what the, the new podcast is about? Oh, yeah. So um, we we started this community for writers. It's called Storycraft Cafe, and it's a place for writers of all genres and uh, to meet other writers and to get uh, get information from people to get motivation to to get support and you know for uh, for writers to to have a safe place where they can come and and share things with one another and for people to to, to meet people who who know you know that who experience the same things that other writers do you know it's a it's a pretty interesting uh you know calling that we have if you want to look at it that way that you get pulled into the writing life and you know only certain other people in the world feel those things and uh the storycraft cafe is a great place for for that kind of stuff to happen and and to get to know those sorts of people so the and the podcast that's coming out of that storycraft cafe is you know we're we're just talking to different writers and picking their brain about why they do what they do, how they do it. You know, we'll, we try to hone in on certain aspects of the craft and, uh, you know, just have fun conversations about writing. And even better, we get to do this on April 1st. Absolutely. I, it, it's so funny, Christopher, because I've uh, made several announcements and people are like, is this an April Fool's joke? And I was like, <laughs> no, it's really not. We're really going to uh, be doing this this afternoon. So, yeah, I um, was on YouTube this morning and I saw a couple of videos and I'm going, really? Oh, uh, seriously? Yeah. X, Y, Z. And I, I was like, Oh, right. Don't trust everything you see today. Yep. Yep. It's, it's crazy. Um, but before we, we get too deep into this, I've got a couple of announcements that I want to make, uh, to celebrate the launch of Storycraft Cafe. We're giving away one, uh, writing mastery Academy membership every week. For the month of April, Writing Mastery Academy is an online program filled with courses, content, and exercises to take your writing skills to the next level. Uh, the first drawing is next Friday, the 8th, and all you have to do to enter is sign up for the cafe and create a new post anywhere in the community. And uh, you'll be entered into the drawing every week this month. We're going to give away uh, something, and uh, you definitely want to be a part of this. Uh, join us every Friday this month. We're going to have special events just like this one. Next Friday, my guest will be Liv Constantine. Sisters Lynn and Valerie Constantine team up to write some of the best psychological suspense as the writing duo Liv Constantine. Then on the 15th, we have Taylor Brown. Taylor is going to talk to us about writing historical fiction and weaving a fictional narrative around real places and people. On the 30th, we have Glenn Eric Hamilton, who will talk writing mysteries, and how to balance a writing career, a very successful writing career, with family and a full-time job. And then finally, on the 30th, we'll conclude this special launch month with a roundtable event with the Dabble team as we talk about 
community and what our hopes are for the Storycraft Cafe. There's something for everyone, so join us all month long to celebrate the launch of the Storycraft Cafe. So, Christopher, how are you, buddy? It's it's been a little bit since we talked, but uh, you you have, uh, as everyone knows, uh, you are probably most well known for the Inheritance Cycle and Aragon, the first book of that, and you uh, very much established yourself uh, in the fantasy space. And then uh, a little bit ago, you you launched this science fiction book, To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, a beautiful science fiction story with world building all its all its own. Um, mm. h- how are you these days and, and what's going on in your creative life? Uh, I'm good. I'm busy. Uh, I'm, I'm as I remember, the last time we talked was before the launch of To Sleep in a Sea of Stars. It was just so before I, then, just before. So I couldn't yeah. actually really talk about the book. Uh, which was it, it's always frustrating when there's a something just coming out and you're all excited about it and you want to you want to share details but you don't want to spoil it for people right um i mean the short answer is i'm busy i've been revising <laughs> uh scripts for uh potential well not potential it's in the works adaptation of to sleep in the sea of stars that's in development uh in hollywood uh, I've been working on some other stuff I can't talk about. Uh, I mentioned before we went live, I actually have two books that are being published next year. The titles haven't been announced, but I can say that one of them is a prequel to To Sleep in a Sea of Stars. It's a shorter novel, um, but it is a prequel. And it de- deals with the events surrounding humanity's discovery of the sort of like first evidence of alien technology that humanity ever discovered. And then uh, the other dragon... Eh, right the other book <laughs> yeah yeah books are dragons uh, the other yeah. the other book is quite a bit bigger and it has does have dragons in it um and i actually wrote that in four months wow. bit over four months so uh while massively sleep deprived with a young child in the house so uh i don't <laughs> and and, so, and, and uh, my early readers tell me they like it and uh that it, it turned out well. So that's really gratifying. And I and I drew seven, eight, no, seven maps to go for it, uh, go with it. So um, I love, I love drawing maps and that was, that was a nice little treat. Well, for the folks that were worried uh, that you would go over to science fiction and never come back to the land of dragons, uh, I think we can tell them that it's going to be okay. That, that absolutely you, you can have one foot in each world. Well, and I want I want to bounce around uh, more in the future, you know, a, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. One of the downsides of a long series is that it and there are many advantages to a long series. And I don't want to you know, complain in the slightest. Sure. Uh, but one of the disadvantages is that you get um, wedded to one set of characters in one setting and one story for a very long time. And that's why you often will see authors step away to do a little side project here or there. So having right. the. The, the setting of to sleep in a sea of stars which is called the let's see where's my pen there's the logo of it the <laughs> let's see if it shows up in this camera uh that's the go. fractal the fractal verse logo um so having the sci-fi side that i can go play in which would include anything set in the modern day it still would be within the timeline of my sci-fi universe uh as well as then having the the world of aragon and whatever i want to do with fantasy it it just you know, you can fit anything into fi- fantasy or sci-fi. It's just a wonderfully oh, yeah. broad canvas to play in. And I don't feel constrained in the slightest. And it's rather liberating to say, hey, I can go write a dragon novel 
or I can go write a spaceship novel, or I can write a romance, or I can write whatever, and it'll all fit within this larger edifice. So speaking of that, um, is world building different uh, for you in writing fantasy versus sci-fi? You, you think of fantasy as being the big world building genre, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, where we create lands and 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 languages and all of that fun stuff. Well, um, as uh, as Brandon Sanderson has has proved uh, with his Cosmere, you can you can meld science fiction and fantasy in some interesting mm-hmm. ways. Um, and and when you start getting off off planet, you know, off Earth, uh, world building becomes a, a lot similar in science fiction as it is in fantasy. Um, yeah. How do you compare the, those two? And and is there a difference for you in, in world building and fantasy versus sci-fi? I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Sanderson, because when I read The Way of Kings, I I remember saying to my family that it was fantasy written as if it were science fiction, because he created the, you know, all this imaginary flora and fauna, the ecosystem, the weather. And yes, there's magic, but it all fits together in a very sci-fi sort of way. Right. Um, I, I think the answer to your question is it depends on what sort of approach you're taking as an author. You know, if you're writing your Star Wars space fantasy style sci-fi, I wouldn't imagine that the world building is much different than if you're writing fantasy, quite honestly. Um, For me, because I was attempting to respect real world physics, that imposed certain hard limitations that I had to work around. And, And of course, in fantasy, I still respect the limitations of physics in the sense that my characters can't suddenly jump a hundred feet in the air without, you know, some sort of reasonable explanation. Um, but trying to respect real world physics and then trying to, you know, do the research of all the things people have already thought about and, and developed in terms of what would be possible with future tech in regard to space travel and weapons in space and warfare and communications and all these other things. Uh, that's, that's a restriction, but I like it because it opens the door to, I don't know, really interesting little corners of world building that you wouldn't necessarily find if you didn't already have things pushing you in directions you wouldn't think of otherwise. Uh, And and of course, you can still make up the rules however you want. You know, look at uh, Ian Banks, who is a particular favorite of mine as a sci-fi author. And he, you know, just came up with a a completely off-the-wall explanation for his FTL drive. And it works in his setting. You know, there's you don't need to know the mechanics of it exactly. It just, it works. So uh, for me, it's similar, but there's more rigor on the sci-fi side. So we we opened up uh, a thread on the Storycraft Cafe asking uh, if people had questions that they wanted to ask you. Mm. And one person said, how do you go about starting a story? Do you do a rough outline and write down traits you want the characters to have? Or do you just start typing and revise, revise, and revise? Mm. And I want to tack something onto that. Um, <laughs> On your website, you uh, in your FAQs, you you talk about the beginning of of Aragon and mm-hmm. you know what would become the inheritance cycle. And you said one of the things that inspired me was an image inspired by Jeremy Thatcher, mm-hmm. Dragon Hatcher by Bruce Koval of a dragon egg appearing before a young man deep within a dark pinewood forest. I knew nothing beyond that, only that I wanted to find out what happened next. So I asked three questions, and this is the part that I love. You asked yourself three questions. What land would a dragon egg come from? Who would find it? And since dragon eggs can't be common, 
who else would be looking for it? Yeah. My quest to answer those questions led me to envision the story that became Aragon. My question for you is now that you are what six, seven, eight books past Aragon now, mm. um, do you still approach uh, creating a story? Now, now when you're writing in a series uh, and you already have the world built and a lot of uh, plot elements in place, does a new book in that series still come about the same way? Or uh, is it only in the beginning of a new world that you approach Storycraft this way? I mean, I could probably, and I'm not exaggerating, talk for an hour <laughs> on that one question and answering that. Sure. Uh, so, so I'm going to try to stick to some of the, the high level okay. things, and then we can get into specifics if that sure. seems interesting. The The first answer is that revision is a necessary evil and life is short. So I don't want to engage in any more than I need to. And yeah. that's a purely practical matter. You know, uh, to sleep in a sea of stars runs about 308,000 words in the published version. And it went through extensive revisions. I finished the first draft in 2016 and it didn't work. And so I was revising it from 2016 until mid to late 2017 when everyone told me it's still not working. And then I had to step back from it and decide if I was going to abandon the project or find a way to fix it. I wrote 200 pages by hand in a week and a half and ripped apart every bit of the characters in the story and then reassembled them into something that I felt worked. And then end of 2017 and all of 2018, I was, and into 2019, I was writing my butt off and basically wrote a new book. Um, and it just takes a long time when it's a book that size. So if you, if any of our viewers have read the book, they'll know that it's divided into sections. Right. Everything after like the first 20 or 30 pages of section two is new. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. All the places that the characters go, all the things they do, everything that it means, all new. Um, it's painful. That's, that's, well, first off, that is a huge commitment to a project because... Yeah. Uh, a lot of people would have abandoned it and, yeah, and, and, and maybe and write may, something else. And maybe I should have from a career standpoint, because it might've been easier to go write something new with the lessons I learned, but I'm very stubborn and I hate giving up. Um, my agent said one of the kindest things to me after I delivered the revisions, which was, he said he thought I was the best re reviser and rewriter that he'd ever worked with or has ever seen in his agency. Um, which was meant an awful lot to me, but it was a painful yeah. lesson and not one I wanted to learn. Um, so the reason I had to go through that is because of a failure to do what I did with Aragon. This is still answering your larger question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So all of my stories come to me as usually an image and an emotion. In the case of To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, it was the very final image of the book, as well as the image of the main character finding this alien artifact. Everything else in that book is to justify those two scenes. In the case of Aragon in the Inheritance Cycle, it was Aragon finding the dragon egg and then what follows after that and trying to justify that and make it, make it emotionally relevant and um, accessible to the audience. So... What I found is I'll get this feeling, I'll get this image, and that's cool. But that's not a story. That's, you know, that's a that's a picture, but it's not yeah. a story. 
And then I start doing exactly what I wrote on my website. I start asking questions. And I usually do this in notebooks. I write by hand. I find that it accesses a different part of my brain as opposed to typing. And I just ask questions. And I, okay, humans are storytelling animals. We tell stories all the time. It's how we arrange sure. both fiction and nonfiction information. You know, A cause B causes C. That's a story. Great. We're good at it. So if you, and, and if you tell a story to someone verbally, you usually can identify what's wrong with it as you're telling it because you can see the impact it has on your audience and it, it's not working. You feel it. Yeah. If you just read it on the page or just type it, sometimes that doesn't happen. So for me, I will talk to myself in my notebooks. It's a literal conversation between, between me and myself and no one else. And I'll write things like, I wonder what happens if this happens. No, that won't happen. I, you know, I'll argue with myself. Yeah. I'll talk, I'll talk. And I talk through the story and the characters until it makes enough sense that I could then sit down with someone and verbally tell them the story from start to finish in a way that makes sense. Because if I sit down to write without the ability to do that, I don't understand my story. I don't understand what it's, what it's doing for the audience or for the characters. Now, I'm not saying you have to sit down with someone and actually tell them the story because most authors would find that painful. We're all a bit of an you know introverted to one degree or yeah. another, but you should have the ability, the theoretical ability to do that because then when you're writing, you're going to know what every scene is doing for the character and the larger story. And then you can write fast. Uh, what got me in trouble with to sleep was thinking I knew what that larger story was but not mm. having really done the grunt work and trying to pull it off by the seat of my pants and getting myself into deep, deep trouble. The reason I was able to write this dragon book recently in four months and everyone's saying it's working is because I, I had the image, I had the feeling, and then I worked out the story. I knew exactly what it was going to do for the main character, where I was going to leave the audience. And then all I had to do was write it. So that, that brings me, uh, to to this bit um uh, robert smith our our marketing ubermensch mm. um said what method do you use for planning your story and and you you touched on that just a minute but are you and you said you you use the phrase by the seat of your pants yeah. um are are you a a pantser or or do you plan out i plan i, I, I know that I, I know the process you talked about about understanding the story so that you can communicate it to someone but does that actually mean plotting out you know outlining a story before you write it yeah because and this part of this comes from novel writing experience and now also script writing experience if you read a well-written script it could be for television it could be for film doesn't really matter which you'll notice that every scene is really focused. I mean, scripts are much more like short stories than novels are. Yeah. And a well-written script, there is no bagginess in the scenes. You know, as soon as they reach the moment of um, greatest impact for a scene, they cut, they end the scene. They don't drag it out. They don't have that extra line or right. two between the characters. It's just bam, we're over. That doesn't always work in a novel, but it really did teach me about how every scene needs to drive things forward and be focused in doing things. And, and it's not that I didn't know that, but when you write novels, you have so much space. And especially in fantasy, there's a tendency toward verbosity, towards exploring the world and simply having fun with the characters and the language. Yeah. And there's a place for that. Um, 
So I would say that I, I at least in terms of the overall structure, I, I have 90% of it before I start writing in terms of every single thing the characters do say feel 70 to 80% of that is worked out before I start. And I like to leave that 20 to 30% as discovery writing going through because there is a certain amount of magic you get as you experience events with the characters and you feel those things they're feeling as you're describing the locations you will of course think of things that you wouldn't think of when yeah. working on an outline and it's important to leave a little room for that because otherwise your outline is 100% the story and then why why even write it you need to leave a little bit of joy in the process for yourself yeah. but um one of the reasons to do this for me is that I'm sure we all, we all, many people get this, you know, you get a new idea. It's exciting. You get a burst of energy from that excitement and you want to sit down and work it, work on it. You want to tell that story because it's exciting, but if you right. do it too soon without the preparatory work, you'll get yourself into trouble. If you wait too long, you'll lose the excitement. So there's a balancing act with, with all of that. And then that leads into the larger issue, which is if you work on a project for too long, you lose all energy, you lose all excitement. And I'm sure we can all think of authors that this has happened to, unfortunately, and it's happened to me on projects. So by working things out as much as I can beforehand without killing that spark of joy, it lets me write fast enough that I can get through a fairly large book basically right. in a sprint. So I can sprint for about... Three months is about ideal. If I can get to an end of a book in three months writing, I haven't burned out. Four months, which is what this one took, uh, about four, four and a half, I was starting to lose it um, at points. Um, but, you know, it was over the holidays. People were visiting. We got sick. You know, sometimes you yeah. lose a couple of weeks and you can't do anything about it. Um, but if you can maintain that burst of energy and that that sprint to basically get yourself over the hump in the middle of the story and then start the race toward the end, it makes life so, so much easier. If I'd taken a year to write that book, it would have been sort of a miserable process. Well, um, and, and one thing that, that you realize is if you have a spouse and you have children and you have people in your life that, uh, that you are responsible for and responsible to um, that factors into that as well. Um, yeah. Writing a book now is probably very different than when you were writing at 15. Well, uh, Aragon. <laughs> maybe I'm, for Aragon, for Aragon. Yes, because I wrote it simply for myself, but very yeah. shortly thereafter, my family and I decided to work on it together and to self publish it. And so since the age of, I mean, I want to say 16, 17. I mean, we were, my, the book was self-published by the time I was 17. I've been doing this professionally and, you know, um, I've had a sense of responsibility with that for a very long time. Now, it certainly changes if you then get married and have a kid. Um, yeah. But, and that, that sense of responsibility can be a great motivator. Uh, you know, I have been very fortunate with my writing career. And if I were on my own if i were a single man if i didn't have my the rest of my family around i can tell you for darn sure i probably wouldn't push as hard as i do um and again it's not that i have to push that hard but it i derive great satisfaction from knowing that i can you know care for my family that i'm being productive um it just it makes me happy so well one of the uh one thing that we are passionate about here is community 
And uh, I mean, we started Storycraft Cafe because we wanted writers to be able to be in community with each other and to uh, share in the joys and excitement and, you know, the 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 low valley days, um, mm. y- you know, the, the the all of the emotions, you know, you need a community to to go yeah. through those things with you, to share in the excitement and to, you know, pep you up when you're down. Um, what does what does community mean to you? And and I know that that you have a very close knit community in your family. Um, mm. But do you have other writers that uh, that you bounce things off of uh, or, you know, go to to, um, you know, share burdens with or that sort of thing? What, what does community mean for you? I mean, community is important. As I've gotten older, I really realize that the whole I don't want to say myth, but the idea of the lone wolf protagonist is, you know, the idea of a lone wolf is that a lone wolf is dangerous is because they're away from their pack and thus are unbalanced and unpredictable. They're dangerous because they're not part of a community and humans, despite what, especially perhaps men like to tell ourselves, humans are tribal based animals you know we need our group and if you are really truly alone if you are up in a cabin in the woods and there's no one around i mean you can go insane like literal insanity um there's a reason why um solitary confinement is classified as torture by amnesty and international you know so we we really aren't meant for isolation and i'm sure people have uh certainly discovered that in many ways over the past couple years with the the lockdowns and isolation and all of that so uh, you know, and I have traveled and stayed in various cities and, you know, it's a old truism that remains true that there's nothing quite so lonely as being alone in a big city. Um, right. So family's incredibly important for me. Uh, unfortunately, writing's a solitary profession and it's hard to meet other writers. That's why I really enjoyed going to writing conventions in the past, not writing conventions, sure. um, sci-fi fantasy conventions. Uh, And that's usually where I would meet sort of colleagues and friends and we'd all sit down and, you know, shoot the wind about X, Y, Z. There are a number of authors I stay in touch with. um, And sometimes I've bounced material off them. Uh, Fran Wilde is a delight. She writes YA fantasy and short stories. And I think she wrote, she won a Nebula or Hugo last year, which is pretty cool. Um, And she's, uh, she's read some of my stuff and given some great comments and, there are a few others. So it's, it is very important. And in fact, and I, I do wish I had a larger writing community that I would sort of had more participation in, but it is difficult too, because the projects I work on tend to have a lot of attention on them. And so there's a lot of pressure from the publisher uh, to really keep them under wraps until they get revealed. Um, same thing when I'm writing working on script stuff. I can't share that. I can't show that to anyone right? Um, unless I, I really trust them. So usually it's friends, family, agent, um, that sort of thing. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of the tough spot, the tough bit. Um, I've been trying, I'm trying to be a little more open with my fans about, Hey, I am working on something and it's this, but I can't tell you the title yet. Um, but I'm, Part of that is that some of the big publishers are still in the pre-social media mentality of we don't announce a title or a book until we're six months from release or something like that, three months from release. And that's really not how it works anymore. And I'm actually in the process of having that conversation about my dragon book uh, with the publisher of twisting their arms saying, you know what, let me talk about it. You know, 
everyone's going to want to hear about this. Let me yeah. just come on, come on, come on. But that's an ongoing conversation. Yeah. Someone in the, uh, in the Storycraft Cafe today uh, asked, and, and I'm, it's a question that I know that you get a lot. Um, what was it like to, uh, to get the kind of recognition and fame, uh, if you will, at such a young age? Uh, and, and it's, it's maybe a bit of an unfair question to ask because you don't have anything to compare it to mm -hmm. you, your journey was your journey mm -hmm. and you don't know what it's like to, to publish your first book at 30 years old. Um, you know, you were 17 when that uh, book, yeah. when you guys first self-published it. And then, you know, there was a whole journey there to, to get where you are now. Um, but do you ever think back on those times and, and just reflect on what a insane ride it's been for, uh, for such a young person? Fairly frequently. Um, I remember the first few years when Ericon came out and I started doing my first conventions and other appearances with other authors who were, you know, by my eyes back then were all so much older than me. And of course, now I look back, I'm like, geez, you know, I'm older than they were now. Um, right. But I now understand, well, and I have for a while, why some of the authors were looking at me the way they were, because, you know, it... At the time, even though I could like sort of intellectually understand that, yeah, this is this is maybe doesn't happen to everyone. I had no idea how unusual it was because, yeah. you know, uh, I wrote my first book and hey, it gets published and hey, it debuts on the New York Times bestseller list and stays there for four years or however long it was. I mean, doesn't that happen to everyone? It's like, no, um, <laughs> it almost no one, almost no one, almost. Um, I even have trouble believing it happened to me. And I know the moment in which I decided to pursue the books versus do anything else. Um, I had applied to Reed College in Portland, Oregon. They offered nearly a full scholarship and uh, I was going to go. I, I had my um, orientation papers on my desk at home and I was staring at them. And we had been preparing Aragon for to self-publish it, and it still wasn't quite out. It had taken longer than we wanted because um, we knew my age was sort of a selling point, And so we wanted to get it out sooner rather than later. But it just took time to do it properly. And I was sitting there sort of in a dither of indecision. And so I finally went to my parents and I said, you know, I don't know what to do. Help me. And to their credit, they didn't tell me what to do. They said, we will support you no matter what you do. What do you want to do? And I thought about it and I said, I want to tell stories. And they said, all right, let's give it a shot. You know, you can always go to school later. Right. But the reason it was such a scary decision is that I knew that even though I could go to school later, if I went to school young, I could kind of be starting out, you know, get a little ahead of the game in my career and whatever I ended up doing. Uh, and we all go through, we all do things every day that could lead to our life turning out very differently. You know, you step off the curb a few seconds early, you get hit by a car, you know, it could be, or right. it could be something small, but m most of the time we're not aware of the fact that we're making a momentous decision. But in that moment, I knew that if I went to university my life was going to be completely different than if I pursued self-publishing Aragon. And that was kind of weird. I mean, it's like I could see my life going in these two different directions. Yeah. So I'm very glad I made the decision I made because it, of course, worked out very well. Um, but it completely changed me, changed my family, changed the life I've led. 
um, changed everything. Um, and there's no way to know what it would have been like otherwise or who, who I would be otherwise. Right. So when you first self-published yeah, that, oh, all, I'll, all I'll add to that is just, I am incredibly grateful for the support of the readers and fans. And I never forget that this is all possible because of my readers. So absolutely. Yeah. That's, I say it almost every interview and I'll never stop saying it because I, when we started out, we really kind of bet everything on seeing if the self-publishing would work. And if the book had taken another three to four months to turn a profit, we were literally going to have to sell our house, move to a city, get any jobs we could. So I will never stop being grateful to the readers and I'll never stop trying to tell stories for them that hopefully will entertain, entertain the pants off of them. Absolutely. When, when you first self-published uh, Aragon, the world of self-publishing was in a very different place than mm. it is now. Uh, since then, uh, and, and probably wasn't long after then, uh, that the whole Kindle revolution kind of took off and, and self-publishing became, uh, you know, a, a, a viable uh, business solution for, for a lot of writers. Yeah. Um, how do you think uh, it would have turned out if some of the tools that are available to authors now would have been available to you then? Um, do you think it would have changed the trajectory um, that you uh, you know eventually took? And, and I know you have a great relationship with your uh, traditional publishers now. Um, so not to discount yeah, yeah, yeah. anyone's choice of the journey they take, but um, – you know, it, well, there may have been some different decisions taken now. When you reach a certain level of sales, you either have to turn yourself into a major publisher or right. you have to work with a publisher. And and honestly, there's a time value to money. <laughs> right. What am I saying? There's a well, there yeah, is a time value to money, mean. but there's also a money value to time. That's what I'm yeah. trying to say. And if you're going to be spending all your days working on the business side of it and not actually writing that may actually be counterproductive. Um, you know, Brandon Sanderson's a great example right now. He's managing to both write a ridiculous amount and turn himself into a publisher. But let's face it, there's only one Brandon Sanderson in the publishing industry. Um, and well, he's fun he, to watch. Well, and he also has a team around him that are... But he's been able to build that team because he produces books exactly. so consistently that he has the content and the sales Right to to drive that. I mean, because there are authors out there um, who are incredibly consistent and produce huge amounts of content, and they just don't have the readership, unfortunately, or fortunately, and or the time or inclination to build that sort of a business. So it takes a very particular person and a very particular set of circumstances to make something like that possible. Uh, as far as my case, I wouldn't be surprised if the trajectory I experienced would have been even faster with the current self-publishing options. Uh, when we started out, eBooks really weren't a thing. So right. you really only had two options. You could do a traditional print run where for economies of scale, you usually would want to do at least 10,000 copies to keep the prices down per book um, on an offset press. And then you got 10,000 books sitting in your garage somewhere and you got to do something with them. Then you get into the questions of distribution uh, or what we did was print on demand where books are printed as needed. It costs a bit more per book, uh, but you don't have to store inventory and the book gets a ISBN number and it gets listed. It got listed on Amazon. Amazon was still a thing back then. 
Um, <laughs> you know, this is back in the days when Netflix sent out actual DVDs in the mail, you know? Right. So, uh, but we didn't do eBooks and that would have really opened the door in a lot of ways and, and, you know, increased sales. That said, there were a number of self-published success stories at the time. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of a couple of them, but I remember there was at least one book that sold for like a million dollars. And there were a couple of these self-published um, books that did really well. Um, <laughs> I think Aragon's outlasted them, but they did really well. And that was our guide of saying, that was sort of an example for us to say, yeah, it can be done and it can be done well. And of course, you know, semi-recently we've seen books like wool or the martian yeah. uh which have been released you know well i mean like the martian he was releasing it for free on his website and it took off yeah. so yeah i i think it would have made things actually easier for us with the current options that's so crazy well, and and you know, you know nowadays there are people who are making really good money writing ebooks for amazon and kindle and not oh, being yeah. traditionally published and they're i mean you have to produce content very fast but they are i mean raking in some serious money doing that yeah lots and i mean i mean more success stories of, of people doing that than than you could imagine yeah um but no matter what uh avenue you pursue for publishing and 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 uh and, you know, you could spend all of your time in world building like we talked about earlier and and creating these great worlds to live in unless you create characters that yeah. people really latch on to. Um, you're you're probably not going to develop the rabid fan base that you have that that follow your stories because you've created characters that they care about. Um Another question that we got from the community, do you prefer to get to know your characters before you start writing, or do you find it easier to discover who they are and mm -hmm. what they're supposed to do while the story's in progress? Uh, do the characters, are they alive to you in the beginning, or do they become alive in the telling? Great question. I will say, backing up slightly, that I think world buildings is, is as important as character and story. But if I had to choose, I would focus more on story and character than world building, because as you said, that's what people care more about. Yeah. Uh, you know, in fact, there are some very successful books that have great characters and a great story, but kind of wonky world building. And, and no one really cares because you enjoy the story and the characters. When I was doing research for To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, I came across a website that is like a shared sci-fi future history universe that people have created with technology and timeline and history and events and, and all of this stuff. And it's a massive amount of detail, but there's no story really to go with it. It's just events, you know? And I saw it and I was like, wow, this is cool. And it feels really realistic. But again, there's no story to just help me enjoy this. So uh, as far as characters go, I usually try to have a decent idea of what a character would do and who they are before I write them. That's because, because that's what a character is. What would a person do in a given situation? You get a better idea of it when you actually write, of course, right? Of course. And that's why sometimes people say, take your character and write some scenes with them where they're just chatting at a cocktail party or they're going to grocery for, get some groceries, you know, stuff that doesn't actually matter to their story, but lets you, get a feel for how they react in different situations. And that can be a useful exercise. Um, personally, I hate to write 
excuse me, I hate to waste writing time. So I just do that as I write the story in any case. Every once in a while, the characters will surprise me. But usually I try to have a good idea of who a person is before I try to write them, especially when it's a long book or a long series, because then that, you know, every character needs to do something for the larger story and develop in some way. So I'm asking myself, what's their issue? What do they want? What do they need? How are they going to change if they do change? How does this influence my main character's story? How does that play into it? Does it reflect it? Does it does it comment on it? Does it, you know, uh, send it careening off in a different direction? Uh, I, I I don't like sort of spitballing that. Gotcha. Unless I know it really is a side character who's not going to show up later, and then I'll just I won't pre-plan and I'll just have fun. That's and and I would imagine that. Uh some some interesting things have just popped up and just you know freely seeing you know what this character is going to do yeah i mean in the, the inheritance cycle is a good good example um there's a character called elva who was not in my original outline and she yeah pops up through sort of circumstances of both what aragon experiences and then my own mistakes in writing and it got incorporated into the story with that character um Another example would be in in Inheritance, there's a character that uh, he's actually like a jailer who is mm, overseeing slash taking care of uh, one of my other characters, Nasuata. And I didn't really have anything pre-planned for him, but he ended for me he became an interesting character when i wrote him and i've had people ask me and you know write to me and ask me and say you know hey you know what tell us more about him because the way you described him was so interesting and we're we're in we want to know more about him which is always gratifying as you have uh uh been on on your author journey you have found interesting ways uh, to add to the the lore of stories that you've told, um, add to the fandom of them uh, in ways uh, other than than publishing new volumes in a series. Mm. Um, and you've you've done interesting things on your website. You've had coloring books, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, based on the inheritance cycle, different yeah. things like that. Um, recently, you released something on your website. Uh, unity tell tell us about unity and and what what this new thing is so unity is an interactive novella that's set after the events of to sleep in a sea of stars has a has a new character and i had had an idea for a long time of writing a story that could kind of be interacted with as if you were kind of interacting with like a computer interface sort of thing. So we did the best version of that we could on um, on my website, fractalverse.net. And we incorporated a lot of concept art that I commissioned for To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, um, partly for the adaptation um, that we're working on also. But yeah, I released it for free because I wanted to give something to the fans. And uh, I had a lot of fun writing it. It was because it's written in... Oh, geez. Let me see if I can remember technically. Um, I think it's second person present tense. Yeah. You do this. You do that. Um, second person imperative. That That's a tough thing to pull Second off. person imperative present tense. Yeah. Um, I, I think it works. I yeah. think it works. No one's complained. Uh, that'll change well, after it, this interview. But Well, it, it definitely works in this format. Um, yes. Second person 
it is a difficult thing to pull off in novel form. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't yeah. think I'd want to write anything longer in second person. And it's yeah. weird, too, because I, you know, like screenplays are written in present tense. And right. so I've done a fair bit of writing in present tense. But even then, every once in a while, it's like my brain gets a little confused with the tense and I want to go, I want to duck back into yes. past tense, especially when a character is thinking about something that has happened already. It can get a little confusing. So uh, yeah, that's out for free. And uh, we're, I, I don't think I've announced this before, but my team and I are actually working also on doing like a cool coffee table style um, print version of unity, which will incorporate like the art and gorgeous full color, full page versions and all of that. So um, we've been lucky to work with some really exceptional artists. I mean, these are artists who've worked on like the big Marvel shows and Black Panther right. and Dune and things like that, Star Wars. Uh, and so they did some of the creature design and character design. And that was a lot of fun. Nice. Um, I know in the Inheritance Cycle, you had a vision for the end of the series from the beginning. I, mm -hmm. I think you even wrote a... Um, uh, a scene in Aragon that uh, that references the end of the uh, the cycle. If I remember yeah, right, yep. it's been a while since I read it, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that that I remember that um, the fractal verse. Uh, did you go into to sleep in a sea of stars with the same sort of vision for the fractal verse and this this overarching universe and the connected nature of stories? that have been told and are yet mm. to be told. Um, did you have that same kind of vision for that? And, and if so, um, what are, what are your plans for the fractal verse? So I had that for to sleep in a sea of stars specifically. So I think of to sleep, sleep, to sleep in a sea of stars as an entire series in one novel. It is a complete story in one novel. It is a little open-ended in a couple of ways at the end of the book, but it tells the story I was wanting to tell in, you know, from start to finish. And that was a fun challenge for myself. So to do uh, actually for the, the next two books I'll be publishing as well. Uh, as far as the fractal verse in general, though, yes, I've got some larger plans, but they are kind of like so large that they don't get resolved in one scene. Uh, they are, they stretch too many years and too many potential stories. So I, I, I leave myself some leeway, though, because they're such big plans that uh, they'll be shaped by the individual novels as I write them. So they're, they're, it's more of like a general roadmap, and then I'll fill in the pieces as I, as I go along. Nice. Um, you are publishing two new novels soon. Uh, what kind of time frame are we talking about? I think the first one will probably come out earlier next year. Uh, again, okay. we don't have an exact, I don't have an sure, exact date sure. from the publisher. Um, so first one will come out spring next year, I think. And then the second one will probably come out uh, fall. Nice. Um, Christopher, before we go, um, I thought we would end on something kind of fun. Um, I've been asking uh, writers this a lot lately in, in the podcast we've been doing. Um, what is uh, the best piece of writing advice that you've ever gotten from someone uh and then maybe what's the worst piece of writing advice that you've ever gotten from someone Ooh. best piece of advice probably has to do with plotting things out um i i 
have found that I can't write without plotting things out. So that that has definitely been the most helpful um, bit of information that I've learned over my career. And there's lots I've learned, of course, but um, that and not worrying about making mistakes. I might have talked about this the last time we were uh, chatting, yeah. but I, I can't remember. But I'll, I'll say it again, which is that, you know, making mistakes is a natural part of the process of any creative endeavor. And so you shouldn't fear that. You should accept that, hey, I'm not going to write a perfect first draft. No one sure. does. And you can see published examples of editing from lots of accomplished authors who've been working for decades and decades. Everyone rips their prose apart. Everyone makes revisions. Everyone tries to make it better. Okay, fine. So don't feel bad when you write something that, hey, you got to go back and you know polish it up or revise it or take it in a new direction. It's a natural part of the process. And when I finally internalized that knowledge, it made all of this so much easier. I mean, I still get a little growly when whenever editing shows up because, <laughs> you know, I mean, because the thing is, is that writing in, in order to create something, you have to have enough ego and confidence to get yourself over the discomfort of worrying about what other people might think or, right. or, or even the physical discomfort of sitting for hours on end to, to produce something large so you have to have enough confidence and excitement and ego to get yourself into and through the project. But then you also have to have enough um, humility, perhaps, to accept that, hey, yeah. it ain't perfect. And how can I make it better? And that's all those those two things are always at odds. Some authors just don't revise. You know, they write their first draft or their second draft and they just put it out in the world and say, you know what, I'd rather work on something new and and keep moving onward and upward in that fashion. And if you can do that and sell copies, you know, more power to you. Uh, but I feel a urge and a duty to make it as good as possible. So I yeah. always, always pay attention to the editing and the revisions. Um, as far as the worst advice I've ever gotten. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's too much, there's too much bad <laughs> advice out there to maybe sum up one or two, but there is a lot of advice on how to write that may give you useful tools, but if you use all of those tools or employ it in exactly the way it's presented to you, will make you sound like another writer and not like you yourself. So if you're making an effort to be, improve yourself as a writer and to read books on how to write and grammar and, and, and prose and verse and this and that and the other, you know, internalize all of it, but still allow yourself to speak and say and write the way you want to. And you'll find that those techniques still come into, will still be useful. Um, but you don't want to just rely on them all the time and overload your prose with them. You'll end up with very artificial sounding prose, which unless that's your goal, will probably impede enjoyment of your story. Um, I have had personal experience with this myself and uh, ended up having to go back through a couple chapters and just rip the prose back down to the bare bones because I was just overdoing it like crazy. And uh, I've gotten better with that over the years. Same thing like with, you know, avoid adverbs, avoid passive tense. I'm sorry, if you go and look at basically every one of the greatest writers of the English language, all of them, with the possible exception of Hemingway, and I think he did too, all of them, use adverbs sure you just have to do it with some awareness yeah um and same, thing with same thing with passive tense passive tense is a perfectly acceptable technique no one usually goes around saying 
my mother gave birth to me on the 4th of July. You say I was born on the 4th of July. It right. has, a, it, it, you know, there are uses for all of these things. Yeah. Well, and and can't we all agree at this point that Stephen King was probably just trolling us all when he said never use adverbs? I kind of think that that was just a troll. So if you read my second book, <laughs> yeah, I may have added one or two during editing, but at least in the first half of Eldest. So, I mean, we're talking hundreds of pages here. I used zero adverbs. Now, wow. does that make my writing better <laughs> or worse than that? chunk of the book i don't know i do know that at that at the after that point i decided i was being a little bit silly and started loosening up the the one the one technique that i'm still on the fence about is uh using any modifiers for said uh, i rarely do it uh but a lot of very good writers will modify the word said and it allows them to convey some more emotion and some more nuance for whatever is being said but uh, I, I still am I, I'm still in the school of thought that I, I prefer to let the, the dialogue itself and the context convey more of the emotion than just tacking an adverb onto said said. So I, I've tried to avoid the the YouTube chat that's going on on the side of my monitor as much as possible during this. And Doug Lansborough, our uh, our dabble editor extraordinaire, said adverbs are next to godliness. So <laughs> we'll, we'll just put that there. Uh, well, uh, but I also see that, Doug. I also see someone here who says that Comic Sans is a god is a god among fonts. That is an evil thought, and you should keep that to yourself. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's the best place to end this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so a couple of new books coming next year for us to look forward to. Um, yeah. Anything else going on that that people need to be aware of, and and where can they plug in to 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 follow along with all the new news that's coming? Well, out? there's there's actually some very big stuff going on that I can't talk about. Um, I'm very course. excited about, but uh, the best places to get news would be uh, my main website, which is paulini.net. Um, you know, I post news announcements there. There are links to my Etsy store and all sorts of resources for you know writing tips and all sorts of other cool stuff with Inheritance Cycle and elsewhere. Um, my other main site is fractalverse.net. Of course, that's the sci-fi side of things and it has tons of cool concept art. You can read the novella Unity free of charge. Uh, it's available there. Uh, and it's I, it's a beautiful website. We had a lot of fun putting that together. It really uh, is. And I am uh, definitely active on social media as well as much as you know, time, life, and schedule allows. Uh, mostly over on Twitter, but I, I do post on Instagram and Facebook. Excellent. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for celebrating this launch of the Storycraft Cafe with us. Uh, if if you haven't gone over to Storycraft.cafe, uh, dear listeners, please do drop by, join the conversation, and uh, and find the community that's been waiting for you. Uh, Christopher, yeah. thank you so much for taking time to come on with me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll, we'll have to do it again sometime. Absolutely. <laughs>